You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're tuned in to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, find a place to put your coffee down there, man. What's going on? This coffee is terrible. Why do you always stop at the gas station when there are numerous actual legitimate coffee shops in town in on your way over from your house to mine where you could stop and get yourself a, a America Chino, an, an iced latte grappolino you get yourself any kind of fancy four dollar coffee drink you wanted and yet you always go over to the gas station and get the the smoking joe special i feel like you just answered your own question for one thing you sound like an asshole saying all that stuff uh and for another you know what this cost me cool 99 cents so it's your tendency to be miserly then is what leads you to drink and then also complain about the bad coffee that you get because you know it's bad it's worse than usual today that's my complaint. Also, though, come on, man. How can I go past the tr- punk rock truck stop and not stop in and see what kind of crazy stuff is happening in there? And it's always something. It's never just people inside there conducting normal transactions. It's always something weird. I, I, I love it, man. I mean, we don't get that stuff where I live and, you know, there's decent people around. Oh, you mean up on the hill where they're still trying to pretend it's the 60s? Up on the south side. That's right. Over in your neighborhood, people are they're afraid to admit to their friends that they're supporting Kennedy because he's a Catholic. <laughs> That's what's going on over on your side of town. Well, the coffee's better. Would you say it's accurate that you're being counter-programmed by the, uh, by the truck stop in my neighborhood because you, you go there to get the shitty coffee when there's actual co- good coffee, like right across, the, literally right across the street? I don't think you know what that word means, counter-programmed, but I feel like we're gonna, probably going to get into it later. You think so? Yeah. Well, it's three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, congratulations, Eddie Alvarez. You're finally in the UFC. Now you best start putting them ass whippings down to the maximum effect to show us that you really are the guy we always imagined you to be. And in round number two, the fictional country of Ireland and the slowly sinking state of Louisiana go head to head this week. Will it come out smelling like chicken gumbo or like, I don't know, something that they eat in Ireland? Whatever they eat, potatoes? Yeah, baked potatoes, Sure. steamed potatoes. Have you seen those maps of Louisiana? Like the real map, the satellite map of Louisiana that show how much of it has has sunk. No. That's pretty crazy, man. It's Well, I'm sure we'll talk about that, too. In round number three, Dominic Cruz returns at UFC 178 in pursuit of the title he never lost. Wait, wait a second. This can't be right. This says he's fighting on the FS1 prelims. Huh. That's well, got to be a typo. We'll fact check that one. Yeah, we'll get into that and let you know later in the show. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time. Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from John Oaks. He writes, I know you're going to talk about it, maybe as a segment, and I know Ben wrote about it in his column with Danny Downs, but I got to say something about that Vanderlei Silva retirement video. I think the way Vanderlei went out was goddamn perfect, considering who this man is and how he fought. They don't call you the axe murderer because you have quote-unquote credibility. Axe murdering (laughs) is its own kind of credibility in this sport. So yeah, he made the video largely in an emotional response to problems he created for himself, but at least he made it. Where all the other, where are all the other retired fighters burning bridges in the name of the next generation of fighters? Where are the retirees standing up for the little guys taking short notice fights to get into the UFC? Who else is vocally standing up to the BS of the UFC? Very few people, too few. And this is indicative of one thing we know to be true of the UFC, that they try to bury your memory if you cross that line. So you know what? Fine, Vanderlei, you crazy bastard. Despite everything, I'm giving you props for this video because you axe murdered your retirement the way you did so many fools in the ring i feel like this one is less a question than it is an unverified listener mail rant uh the kind one might see in the breakfast of champions yeah you know we could go either way with that i'm gonna come out and say i pretty much agree with what john oaks is saying here uh you know and as everyone knows vanderlei silva uh called it a career this past week in the form of one of his strange uh 
maybe self-shot, but obviously edited by someone else videos. Pretty where, well edited, actually. Where he goes, uh, he goes off on the UFC and in the course of announcing his retirement, kind of interspliced in there with some old school Vanderlei Silva highlights. Plus, did you see the part where they do a split screen and like part of it is just the photos of all the people supporting Vanderlei with their war wand uh, signs while like an acoustic guitar plays a, a wistful melody? You know what I liked was the highlight of him headbutting that guy in the corner. <laughs> do you remember that? It's just like that says a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it does. You know, OK, though, I think that. You know, as we discussed, Danny Boy Downs and I talked about it in the, the trading shots column, but, you know, Vanderly does make some solid points with regards to other fighters, specifically Hennon Brown and how right. the UFC treated Hennon right. Brown. I mean, the, I think that's his strongest point that he makes in the video. As Danny pointed out, you know, he tries to paint himself as an aggrieved party at the UFC was just overworking the poor guy. And when, you know, Danny points out exactly how many fights he's had in the last five years or whatever, it's really not that many, right. you know, so he can't really claim that status necessarily for himself. I think he's probably been treated pretty well by the UFC. Uh, the, the, the points he made about other fighters though, you do have to balance it where, cause you say, okay, you're right about this. I'm glad somebody is mentioning this. Uh, it, it deserves discussion. And yet at the same time, this whole thing, man, we can't help but feel like you're just trying to change the subject, uh, because you know, you got that, that hearing coming up. You don't want to go through with it. You don't want to deal with the consequences of your own actions, basically. And you're finding a way to kind of flip the script on your way out the door. Right. And as John Oakes points out, I think, in his in his listener mail quite aptly that these are these are problems that Vanderlei Silva made for himself absolutely and uh, you can't get around the timing of the whole thing no matter how hard you try and clearly the messenger here is flawed right uh, but at the same time like I feel like those of us who work in the industry we hear these kinds of complaints like not infrequently from people once they're finally done with their career right uh, and so you know even though there's probably some reason for us to be skeptical of, of Vanderlei Silva's motives and certainly skeptical of certain parts of his career. Uh, it, it is kind of admirable, I think, to see a guy this high profile who otherwise, you know, except for his very recent history, might otherwise go down in history as as one of the greats and maybe a UFC Hall of Famer if you if you count uh, if you add in the Pride days and stuff like that. So it's kind of admirable, in my opinion, to see a guy this high profile uh, kind of burning that bridge, as the listener mail uh, says, and uh, and you know even if his motives aren't entirely just, kind of sticking his neck out to to uh, to deliver this message, which is not doesn't come out of the blue. Certainly, these are things we've heard from other people. So to have him reiterate it, uh, especially as you said in the defense of Hennon Burrell. Uh, it's not totally devoid of, of its power, I don't think, the message. It does make you wonder, though, what the U.S.'s response is going to be, uh, as you know, oh, John Oh, it makes Oaks you wonder, like we don't know? Well, I, I kind of wonder because, you know, for one thing, you got USC 178 this week, so there's going to be a bunch of media coming to Las Vegas. Dana White is going to have plenty of opportunity to sit down, and you know he's going to be hit with that question at some point, probably multiple points. And you feel like you can kind of script that one out exactly how it's going to go. But I also wonder if this is one where, you know, They'll take instead of the, you know, kill with fire approach that they've taken with some other guys like Rampage Jackson or Tito Ortiz. If this will be the like shrugging dismissive Dana, who's like, well, hey, look, the guy didn't want to go to before the athletic commission. And so he tries to do this to, to take attention away from that, whatever, man, uh, and just kind of brush it off. And I wonder like, which would be worse. Like if they come out and go all scorched earth on you, then at least, you know, you, you hit a nerve and it's, the topic you raised is now a conversation that's happening one way or another. If they just kind of write you off and say, oh, well, this guy, you know, obviously screwed himself. And now he's, he's trying to get you guys to pay attention to something else. You're not paying attention to what he did. Uh, that might be worse, I think, for Vandalay. Well, they already did kind of go scorched earth on him even previous to this where they uh – invited everyone to tune in to the fight pass airing of of his Nevada State Athletic Commission and meeting. kind of promising that it was going to be bad for him. Yeah, and like if you were Vanderlei Silva, I think you would probably feel slightly betrayed by that and you got to think that 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 has a big part played a big part in in this, you know, new attitude kind of uh, uh you know, Vanderlei Silva maybe almost in revenge mode kind of like definitely wants to get his case out there before he uh before he walks away from the sport. Uh, but yeah, curious timing. 
uh, well, maybe not even curious timing, but like pretty obvious timing that he, he retired rather than go face the music in, in Nevada. Uh, but I mean, what was the alternative? He goes down to Nevada. They would probably slap him with, uh, some kind of suspension, which he certainly could have served and then most likely come back and had, you know, another fight or two in the UFC and, and gone out on a high note for him to, to walk away at this juncture and in this way. Uh, he's got to be feeling pretty, I would think, discouraged and, uh, you know, like fed up, I guess. Yeah, he certainly seemed discouraged and fed up in that video. I wondered, though, I was interested to see how that question was going to get resolved at the Athletic Commission because it did not seem like a, a given that they were going to be able to, to nail him quite the way they thought they would uh, once you know his attorney started raising the questions of, do you even have the right to test the guy at that point? Which, of course, would throw the whole practice of like out-of-competition testing uh, into some question because... You know, when do you have the, the right as an athletic commission to, to test these fighters if it's not, you know, a few months before their fights? I, I think that that was an interesting question that we kind of need an answer to. We need that clarified for future reference. Uh, and hopefully we get that somehow, even if it's not with the Vanderlake situation. The next question this week comes to us from John Joe Carter. He writes, so it seems like some bad juju is going down in Florida with the likes of Tiago Silva and Anthony Johnson. You folks mind discussing that shit for me to get me caught up? Uh, so yeah, we had some breaking news, uh, on Friday, right after the Breakfast of Champions came out, which is now, I suppose, the new signpost in the road in order for, uh, the MMA gods to, to decide that it's time to break a bunch of big news is to wait for that thing to come out. Thanks, but, MMA uh, gods. the UFC, in light of, I guess, some, re- uh, some new evidence involving Tiago Silva, uh, decided to go ahead and re, re, re-release him. Do you uh, see the new evidence? To hit him in the, uh, put him back on the unemployment line, which I guess who could have known that was going to go poorly, right? When you bring <laughs> Tiago Silva back. And then also they, uh, suspended Anthony Johnson indefinitely, uh, after I, I, what appears to be some new allegations, uh, or at least more information about previous allegations, uh, made against Anthony Johnson, also in the realm of, of domestic violence. And, uh, I did see the video where Tiago Silva's talking about having the gun in his pocket. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah, it looks like he's probably on drugs and kind of acting scary and crazy. And that's the video where you're like, well, uh, that couldn't be anyone else because we know you have that neck tattoo, right? <laughs> there you go. In neck ca- tattoo strikes again. In case the kids at home are thinking about getting a neck tattoo, but they're on the fence. Uh, I would say just on base on the basis alone that it could incriminate you in a future video. It, maybe it cuts down on your odds of successfully using the it wasn't me defense. Yeah. Yeah, that's just some other crazy professional fighter with the same neck tattoo that I have. It is the thing where it almost seems like this really predictable uh, series of events, right? Like, he has this this criminal problem. The SWAT team ends up taking him down. Then his ex-wife leaves the country after he gets bail. And the UFC's like, okay, great. Everything's fine now. Charges dismissed. We're going to go ahead and say acquitted, uh, untainted after coming through out of the legal process. And then, boom, wouldn't you know it, of course, there's a video uh, and one that doesn't necessarily show him doing anything that he was really accused of in like the most damning parts of that original complaint. But still, you see that video and you start to think, yeah, well, he definitely wasn't just wholly like un- like accused out of nowhere on this stuff. He, at the very least, he went over to his ex-wife's house with a gun uh, acting kind of weird. And just makes you wonder about all the rest of it. And then you think, like, why didn't the UFC see that maybe this was at least enough of a possibility that you didn't need to immediately re-sign the guy, especially when he's hurt and he can't fight for you anyway? That whole situation just seems so much more baffling now. Why do that? Why rush to re-sign the guy uh, just because the charges didn't stick for the moment? Especially since it's a guy who isn't going to help you that much as a, a commodity for the UFC. And also... Even, uh, you know, also amazing is that this whole uh, saga with Tiago Silva plays out while the NFL is dealing with, like, an incredible high-profile domestic violence scandal that uh, has caused high-profile sponsors to pull out, has caused people to question whether or not the the uh, commissioner of the NFL is going to lose his job. It seems like if you were even paying attention to the news in, like, a cursory shirt tail uh, you know, capacity. You'd Just be CNN like, push notifications on your phone yeah, would tell you that yes, this is a on bad your flip idea. Phone. Yeah, uh, you'd see, you'd think that you would see that happening and be like, huh? 
Maybe this isn't the right time maybe for us we to, should rethink this. to go light on this domestic violence guy when it turns out that his court case isn't going to go forward. What also seems like, and this is something that we've seen to see over and over again with domestic violence, just like in our culture, where it seems like the the first response uh, is to just be like, well, okay, everybody, let's just let's just slow down and let's assume that like it was completely made up out of nowhere, hitting this guy uh, with a completely unjustified accusation, and everybody kind of rushes to their defense, and it's like. Anthony Johnson is on there on Facebook talking about, oh, man, the shit people will say, the lies people will come up with. Well, man, this is the second woman who's come up with this same lie. Don't you think that's a little weird, dude? Don't you think it's a little weird that you you would seem to be hit with an uncommon number of completely false accusations regarding domestic violence? That seems strange to me. And it, I mean, it's also a situation where you do want to believe in due process and you want to make sure that that you know guys get their day in court that they get to defend themselves that that uh you know the 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 procedure is followed to to the letter and all that but but at the same time if you're the UFC and especially with a dude like Thiago Silva like you don't have to employ that guy you don't have to re-sign him so quickly uh you know you could take the time to look into it yourself well, and uh, I don't was, know with, with Anthony Johnson, maybe it's maybe it's the right move to suspend him indefinitely until he does, you know, go through the system and have his due process because, uh, you know, the outcome could be whatever. I don't know. And I mean, I'm, I, I don't want to be a guy who's who's coming out like a firebrand saying that every single person that gets a charge levied against them absolutely needs to be fired. But at the same time, like, I think you can exercise some common sense. Yeah. And in the Tiago Silva case, it seems like that just didn't happen. Well, you know, one of the things the New York Times had a thing pretty recently about uh, how different sports teams, different and different leagues uh, have responded to domestic violence complaints. And one of the the teams that kind of stood out, I believe, was the Seattle Mariners. And they had a, a representative kind of saying, like, look, we realize that domestic violence allegations are one of the hardest ones to successfully prosecute for a number of reasons. And so when that stuff comes up, when the allegations come up, uh, you know, we take action on the allegations. We don't necessarily wait for there to be a guilty verdict um, because, you know, we feel like we're – you you got a guy you're, you're worried about character issues both for your team and for your community uh you can take some action on that kind of stuff you don't necessarily have to wait to see if there's a verdict i mean the the usc will fire you for a tweet you know you, you shove a, a ref if you're jason high and that's it you're banned you know without them even seeing it like they've been known to to take some harsh action at those times and and it, th- like you said suspending a guy and saying all right we're not going to let this guy do anything until this stuff gets sorted out uh, and until we feel like we can kind of make a judgment, like they say they're having a third party law firm investigate, which I'm not really sure what that means. But uh, I mean, I think that you you do have a little bit of leeway and a little bit more responsibility, I think, to to look at those things and to not jump to a judgment necessarily either way. Uh, but it seems like so many of those situations where. It's like one of the only crimes where, you know, the accusation gets out there. Nothing really happens. Wait, was there a video? If there's a video, then we'll take it seriously. You know, and it's a, it's a weird trend for us to get into. And yet at the same time, like, I mean, I feel like at least it's getting us to have this conversation that we should have been having a long time ago about domestic violence and about pro athletes. Because for a long time, these guys have been getting away with that, that kind of stuff, like in the NFL and baseball, NBA. I mean, it's pretty fucking disgusting stuff. Dana White thinks the most disgusting, despicable thing he's ever seen is Jonathan Snowden writing an article telling people not to buy a pay-per-view. I would say hitting the mother of your children in the face and knocking out her teeth would be slightly more disgusting and despicable than that. One of the things that I think is kind of continues to be kind of troubling about the way the UFC handles stuff like this is again, you know, like we talk about a lot on this show that they don't really seem to have a hard and fast policy. They just seem to kind of govern by the seat of their pants, which, you know, is handy, I guess, in terms of like, uh, meeting out punishment uh, on a case by case basis. But like you, you even now in the UFC have these weird apparent double standards where, uh, you know, Abel Trujillo is still in the company, even though he's had some, some domestic violence charges levied against him uh there was the kid who got fired uh because it turned out that that uh he his career in the was it the air force had yeah. been short-circuited because of a domestic violence uh charge Chope, or, or convict yeah will chope uh and, and uh uh you know and then you get the tiago silva thing which kind of they kind of waffle on go back and forth and then but you get anthony johnson just now on the tiago silva thing where we were saying well why do you need him he not, doesn't help you that much as if like hey tiago silva you are not good enough to be allowed to domestically abuse somebody 
which would be a, a, a bad message to send. And, yes, it would. And, and like, so I, that's what I'm saying. Like, maybe it would be helpful for there to be some kind of written rules and regulations to to govern these situations. Uh, and, you know, I agree that it's good that, that these kind of events prompt us to have these discussions and start to get it figured out. But it still kind of feels like the UFC runs its personnel decisions according to the whims of, of like one or two dudes and like however the wind blows on that day, which... I don't know, man, when you run in a, a corporation that you uh, say is worth multiple billions of dollars, it seems like maybe you ought to have some some stuff written down. I don't know, some policies. Well, I mean, just look at how people responded to the NFL, which is, you know, a, an incredibly popular sport here in uh, the United States of America. And this is the, the thing that's forcing a lot of people, I think, to step back and say, wait a minute, what am I supporting by supporting the NFL? Uh, and, you know, it's taken a lot for something like that to happen. It wouldn't take that much for, you know, something similar to really hurt the UFC. They do not have the NFL's immense popularity. Next question this week comes to us from Brian Saul. He writes, damn it, I'm pissed. I just listened to a post UFC show that was giving Mark Hunt's 10 and 8 MMA record the beatdown. They said that not too long ago, he was a 500 fighter and would always have the embarrassing loss to Sean McCorkle. To me, the beauty of MMA is that the combat sports, it's the combat sports equivalent of any given Sunday. Unlike boxing's use of cans to keep a fighter undefeated, I've never felt the MMA fighter's win-loss record mattered because anything could happen. Please discuss so I will know whether to calm down or to commence breaking shit. Uh, so obviously, uh, Mark Hunt went over there to uh, the city of Japan this past week and uh, and knocked out Roy Nelson, which is something that you don't see every day. No, you do not. Uh, in the main event of a show on the Fight Pass, uh, and uh, com? now now we're 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 left to puzzle over the position of Mark Hunt in the uh, in the heavyweight division whether or not he's a top 10 guy uh and clearly as Brian Saul points out here I think it's it's valid to say that he's a guy that's kind of come out of nowhere the last couple of years a guy that that the UFC only gave fights because I think they were contractually obligated to do it after they bought pride and yet he's been able to fashion this kind of surprising and nice little run for himself in the heavyweight division so like I don't think it's it's wrong to acknowledge that a couple of years ago Mark Hunt was down and out and and had that loss to Sean McCorkle and we thought maybe that would be the end of him but uh at the same time you also have to acknowledge that uh he's he's really turned his career around in a way that nobody expected it to happen and and at this point maybe he's a top 10 heavyweight. Well, I also would want to take issue with the claim that the records don't matter because it's any given Sunday kind of situation. I mean, right. the records matter. The, the records do tell us to some extent what somebody is capable of, but people get better. You know, some people improve. Some people go through a, a tough time either just because they're not up to that level of competition or they got, you know, stuff going on in their personal lives that maybe makes it so that they're not training as hard or as well as they should be or they're just not mentally where they need to be to go in there and win. And people get through that stuff. I look at Matt Brown. You know, the fighters can... They can push through some of those those tough times. It's not just like, hey, as soon as you lose three in a row, we should the entire MMA world should just forget about you. Uh, and I think Mark Hunt is proof of that. You know, his ground game. At, like I went back and watched that fight he had with Vanderlei Silva, which is insane now when you think about it. That Mark Hunt and Vanderlei Silva fought each other uh, in a Pride fight. And man, his takedown defense was awful. I mean, Vanderlei, not a guy known for great takedowns, and he's just like reaching over and grabbing a single leg and kind of tossing Mark Hunt down a couple points and, and saving himself when he gets into trouble in standing exchanges with Mark Hunt. And you look at that guy and then, you know, the one who can have his back taken for a couple seconds by Roy Nelson and not freak out, not, not get submitted immediately the way he was when he was fighting guys like uh, McCorkle or even Gegard and Musasi. You know, he's definitely improved and I think has gotten a little more comfortable knowing exactly what his game is as an MMA fighter and how to keep it where he wants it uh, instead of just going in there and hoping to God no one takes him down. So, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a testament not that the records don't matter, but that they don't tell you everything about what a guy will always be. I right. mean, Mark Hunt might be – he's 40, but he's still been getting better. I mean, and I think that uh, it is time people give him a little bit more of a sincere respect instead of this kind of, you know – semi-ironic, semi-patronizing respect. Yeah, and he really kind of worked Roy Nelson in this fight, too. Yeah. Like he he looked to be in control for, for nearly all of it. And, and, you know, Roy Nelson, obviously a dude who is renowned for, for his chin and, and renowned for his ability to be durable and to take punishment. And you could tell in this fight that Mark Hunt hurt him a few times before the end finally came. I agree with you about the, about records. And I think that, you know, 
With MMA records, the case has always been that you just have to look a little bit more deeply than the actual numbers. Like Randy Couture ended up 19 and 11 in his UFC career, but is a dude who just pretty, you know, except for the one really notable exception against James Tony, uh, always fought the best. And so, uh, you know, you got a problem with James Tony. Come see him. Had a lot of ups and downs, you know, so you can, you have a guy like Randy Couture who ends up not really having the, the most impressive record. But, you know, but way back at UFC 8 when Don Fry fought Thomas Ramirez in Puerto Rico uh, and right before the fight, they were talking about how Thomas Ramirez was like, you know, 500 and 0 in street fights or whatever. Nice. And then uh, Don Fry knocked him out in eight seconds. I think later it turned out he was like a cab driver or something like that. Well, they had just kind of made up those stats about the, re- the records being different things is yeah, the ultimate. You point. could do that. You could do that back then. Also, when you look back at that uh, losing streak, that like four year long losing streak that Mark Hunt was on. Worth noting that it starts out with losses to Josh Barnett, Fedor, and Alistair Overeem. So, you know, it's not like uh, he was getting submitted by absolute nobodies there. The last question this week comes to us from Dallas Finch. He writes, hey, my guys, remember when the main event of UFC 178 was John Jones versus Alexander Gustav or John Jones versus Daniel Cormier, and we were all super jacked about it? Yeah, well, now the main event is Demetrius Johnson versus... Hold on. Let me look this up. Oh, right. Somebody named Chris Carriasso. The rest of the lineup is still pretty cool, though. Should I still be super jacked? I see Dallas Finch knows how to get his uh, question on the podcast. Okay, I guess we might as well talk about this now because obviously we don't think that the main event is worth getting super jacked over because we decided to discuss it in listener mail and not even set aside a round for it. That is pretty telling. Looking at the UFC 178 lineup, and we were discussing how we're going to organize the show today. Uh, We have, you know, a number of pretty good but non-title bouts on this card. And the one we decided to to shuffle into the listener mail section was the one title fight, the main event. What does that tell you? Yeah, and honestly, UFC 178 did lose a tremendous amount of steam when when John Jones and Daniel Cormier uh, had to be postponed because of, of uh, John Jones's leg injury. Because of Alistair Overeem, let's just say it. <laughs> Thanks, Overeem. Because of Alistair Overeem, I'm gonna come out and say though that you should still be medium jacked. Oh, I would say even more than medium jacked. Maybe not super jacked. Uh, what's between medium jacked and super jacked? Uh, Luke lukewarm jacked. Um, moderately jacked modestly jacked jacked. yeah okay fairly jacked fairly jacked. somewhat jacked yeah uh well and the fact that demetrius johnson versus chris carriasso which we've said for you know weeks and months is a very strange booking and one that seemed almost like desperation when the fight was booked uh you know that's a very strange booking and and the fact that i think that it hasn't gotten any attention at all in the lead up to this fight card uh is just kind of a testament to how good a lot of the undercard fights are you know we're going to talk about donald cerrone versus eddie alvarez and dustin poirier versus conor mcgregor later in the show but you know you got the return of cat zingano you got the return of dominic cruz and then you know staring staring down the barrel of that middleweight fight tim kennedy against yoel romero which uh uh, you know, is is going to be crazy awesome, I think. I don't think that there's any way that a bunch of weird stuff doesn't happen in that fight and, and is probably going to turn out to be a, a kind of a crowd pleaser, I would guess. Yeah. Well, and I mean, okay, so part of it, I think you're right, is that it was a, it's a weird booking to begin with. Chris Carriasso was on nobody's radar as the guy who was going to be the next flyweight challenger. It just kind of seemed like, well, we got to come up with another title fight here. Who's around? Who can take the fight? Find this guy. And it seems like that's almost as if the UFC is admitting, well, no one gives a shit about the flyweight title anyway. We had, But we can say we have a title fight on the card if we put one of those fights. So it won't really matter who, is it, who it's against. It's kind of just like a bonus that you can throw on to some of these cards, whether it's a Fox card or whether it's bolstering a pay-per-view or something. But you're right that one of the things that makes it seem, I think, weaker than it is is the contrast of how much other awesome stuff is going on there i mean it's just one of those rare cards where that like lately it's been the opposite where the ufc will have a pretty strong main event and we complain that the undercard is weak and this is one where the undercard is really really awesome and you get to the main event and that's the part where people like uh you know i don't know it's late i might tune in or i might turn in you know you can tell me how it turned out tomorrow right which i think continues to do kind of a disservice to demetrius johnson because i'm not mad at, at having to watch demetrius johnson fight i think that that dude is entertaining and i'm looking forward to having him go out there and do the thing that he does uh so well down there in the flyweight division is just kind of a bummer that they threw this random chris carriasso matchup out there without even waiting to see who won the uh, brad pickett ian mccall fight or the uh you know john lineker had a fight like a week or 
or two after this booking. So it, it, it's a strange booking. It, it doesn't do any favors for your, for your flyweight champion, who's a guy you'd think you would be doing everything you could to try to get over at this point since, uh, he's kind of been a workhorse for you, honestly. Yeah. And this seems uh, like a kind of a no win situation. Like we talked about the situation for TJ Dillashaw was kind of tough taking on Joe Soto there. Uh, but this is one where like, man, if you don't go out there and absolutely blow that guy away, it looks kind of bad for you. And then you get into the doomsday scenario where if you book your champions in these kind of weird no-win situations, eventually someone messes up and that champion loses and then... Or he just gets hurt in victory and he's out for a while. And then we got to go through the whole rigmarole of having to do Demetrius Johnson versus Chris Carriasso too, which <laughs> right. if you thought the first one was bad, man, I, that's not what you want to see happen with the flyweight division. Well, it even seems though in the ads, like, have you seen those ads for UFC 178 where they're, it's like entirely focused on Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier? Yeah. Uh, and then it's kind of like, oh, and by the way, uh, there's the main event title fight, too. So, you know, stick around for that. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment or a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, Eddie Alvarez has finally done it. He's extricated himself from Bellator and will make his way to the UFC this Saturday to fight Donald Cerrone in the co-main event of UFC 178. It's been a long time coming for Alvarez. Uh, his trouble with Bellator started way back in the wake of his win over Patricky Free Ferrer. Ferrer? Sure. Have we ever figured out how to say that name? I don't think anybody knows. Okay. It's one of the, those mysteries of the universe. That was back in October 2012, the last fight on his then Bellator contract. He tried to get, get away from the company and come to the UFC then. Obviously, that resulted in nearly two years of legal wrangling and bad feelings. But some regime change over there in Bellator might have been the best thing to happen for Eddie Alvarez because Scott Coker has cut him loose. He's coming to the Octagon this weekend. He's going to be in, dare I say, a borderline dream fight matchup for fans against Donald Cerrone here in a fight that we all expect to uh, to wind up on some fight of the year or fight of the night lists. Uh, but I'm going to come out and say this is kind of a must win for Eddie Alvarez, is it not? You know, I don't think anybody's going to look at it if you lose to Donald Cerrone and say, well, you're garbage. Because uh, everybody knows Donald Cerrone's a tough guy. But it is the... This is the strike while the iron is hot moment for Eddie Alvarez, right? Like, he, we've been hearing about him for a while. The people who, you know, aren't big Bellator fans, who, who aren't the people who just turn on Spike TV on Friday night to see whatever the hell is happening, the people who kind of just follow the UFC and maybe don't know a ton about Eddie Alvarez, this is the moment where they're going to hear, okay, so you've been telling me this guy is awesome and this fight is supposed to be great. Let's see it. Let's see what you got, man. And so this is your your big chance to kick down the door and make a, a huge entrance and and put yourself on the map immediately as far as title contenders in a really crowded lightweight division. That's the problem, I think, is that if you lose this fight, it's not like people are just going to write you off, but you do kind of fall into a pretty uh, busy pack there. There's there's a lot of people trying to stand out at lightweight right now. It's really going to be tough for somebody to, to make a clear case, but a win over Donald Cerrone coming in as the Bellator lightweight champ, I mean, that's the kind of thing that could do it. Yeah, it could forge him into an immediate number one contender. Uh, what, I was trying to think of this earlier today. This is a, this is a, a highly anticipated, uh, debut for Eddie Alvarez, obviously comes in with a lot of this hype and expectation behind him. Like previous to this, what do you think is the most recent, uh, UFC debut that, that garnered this much attention? You know, is Alistair Overeem was, was one of the only guys that I could come up with because this feels very much like, uh, when the Pride guys came over or yeah. when the WEC guys came over after those companies both got, you know, bought and then folded into the UFC by the parent company. And that's the reason that I thought that this is a must win for Eddie Alvarez, because I think Eddie Alvarez had a real face turn, if you will, if I can borrow a term for, from professional wrestling, uh, during this, this trouble that he had with Bellator, because I think a lot of people that maybe had not really seen Eddie Alvarez fight before, uh, became aware of his struggle and, and became aware of the fact that Eddie Alvarez 
came out of uh, the whole thing and endured the whole thing, looking like a pretty rad dude, like doing uh, uh, Skype interviews what with the MMA Fortnite while his kids were playing in the background. Uh, at his house. And so I think he comes in with a lot of expectation. He comes in with kind of a feel good story as finally being able to, uh, to debut in the UFC. And he, and he comes in with a lot of people really waiting to see if he can prove that he is, in fact, among the best lightweights in the world. And for that reason, to me, it feels like he needs to win this because if he loses to Donald Cerrone, which, you know, we've seen high profile guys come into the UFC and lose their debut, uh, that takes a lot of the wind out of the sails, I think, in terms of that hype. Well, you know what it reminded me of was when Jake Shields came to the UFC mm, from Strike Force. That's, that's a pretty good. Uh, I think uh, I think comparison. Eddie ha- probably has a little more hype, a little more momentum because he's a little bit more of an exciting fighter. But you'll remember, you know, Jake Shields. He had that title defense against Dan Henderson in Strike Force, one where he got dropped in the very beginning and it looked like he was going to get knocked out. But then you know came back uh, and just basically dominated Dan on the mat for the rest of the fight. Uh, won that one via decision and had made it really clear beforehand that he was not interested in re-signing with Strikeforce when that contract was up, that he wanted to go to the UFC, uh, which I remember his, his now uh, deceased father who managed him saying that, you know, maybe it wasn't the greatest idea negotiating-wise, Jake, because uh, it kind of let everybody know they didn't really have to get into a bidding war for your services because he told everybody where you wanted to go. But he came in and fought Martin Kantman, as you recall, and it was mm-hmm. kind of the supposed to be like a setup thing where, okay, he'll come in here, he'll fight Martin Kantman, a really respectable uh, UFC welterweight. Everybody assumed he would beat Martin Kantman, and then title fight is next. And he did not look great in that fight. Won a split decision, really could have gone the other way. The, the weight cut might have uh, taken a little something out of him in that one. But then he did go ahead and get that title shot next. But by the time he got to George St. Pierre, because even in victory, uh, that fight didn't come off looking great for him, he lost a little bit of that momentum. And I think that that's something to keep an eye on here with the Eddie Alvarez situation. I mean, I think that if you're going to beat a guy like Donald Cerrone, you're probably going to have to go out there and really beat him. I mean, it's probably not going to be... You know, a, a close split decision either way it goes. Um, one of the things that really surprised me though was I, I talked to both these guys, uh, story that's run in the, uh, the newspaper USA Today tomorrow. Uh, do you know that Donald Cerrone claimed several times during the interview, even when I kind of tried to imply that I didn't believe him, that he has never seen Eddie Alvarez fight? Never. Really? Never didn't watch any film, anything Not like once. that? So I said, you didn't even go feel the need to go back and look him up when, uh, you you heard you're going to be fighting the guy, and he says, "I never in my whole life have I seen him fight. Still haven't." And when I asked why, his response was, "I don't know. I guess I didn't give enough of a shit to Google him." Huh? Yeah. I'm gonna say a that may not be true, and b maybe just he thought watching that film would get cut into his lake time. It's been lake season, you know. It, it has been lake season. That's a, that's a point I had not considered. Uh, but I do think that he's one of those guys mentally where he and he's kind of talked about the mental hurdles uh, in his game. Where I think the way he explained it to me was, hey, if I go there and I start watching this guy looking really good and beating people up, then I'll start thinking of the things that he does well and what I'm going to do about it. And instead, I shouldn't even be thinking about him. I should just be thinking about, you know, what Cowboy Cerrone does, uh, which is uh, land those ass weapons down to their maximum effect. I believe his actual quote at one point was, I'm fucking bringing it. Uh, and that seems to be kind of his mentality is he doesn't want to get caught up thinking about the other guy too much. I think he feels that that messes with his head, which is, I think, an interesting insight in Donald Cerrone. And really, it would kind of be the exception to the rule if if Eddie Alvarez manages to come in and make his UFC debut and win and look impressive and then and then go on to the great things that we all kind of expect from him. Because we see a lot of guys struggle when they first come into the UFC. You know, I remember it happened to Carlos Condit when he had been WEC champ for so long and, and you know, came into the UFC with, with a bunch of, of hype and promptly dropped one to Martin Kampman. Uh, and... Uh, I, it just seems like these that that happens a lot. Guys who come in with a lot of hype tend to kind of underwhelm, and then fights that we uh, put a lot of hype behind and saying like, "Oh, there's no way this could be a bad one." Those fights tend to underwhelm. You don't want to believe that about this situation because uh, both Eddie Alvarez and Donald Cerrone don't really seem to have any speed besides awesome. Uh, but again, this is a situation where have we overhyped this fight? Have we overhyped this matchup? Fuck it, let's go ahead and do it. I mean. Let's not, like, do you think it's really going to make a difference in the outcome of the fight? We're like the kid getting the letter from the college he's applied to and hoping that, like, if we do something special, you know, some little rain dance before we open it, that it will change the contents of what's inside. Okay, and that's not point. the case. Good I mean, I, I think that, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. There's, n- like, there's no point in pretending that there's not a lot of hype and expectation and pressure on both guys to perform in this fight, because there is. I think if anything, your your Carlos Condit example and my Jake Shields example just proves don't make your debut against Martin Kamen. Hmm. 
Bad idea. Yeah. That's, uh, at least Eddie Alvarez isn't going to have that problem. Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, this week, just when you thought things couldn't get any worse for former WEC champion uh, Apollo Philo, remember he sort of went crazy. I do remember uh, that, Around yes. the same time that he was feuding with Chael Sonnen in the WEC back in about 2007, 2008. Ever since then, it's been a long, slow, scary, depressing slide toward the bottom for Philo uh, with some mental issues and drug addiction, etc., etc. He's now 3, 5, and 3, dating back to the summer of 2010, uh, with his most recent win coming against Little Ass Ninja, who, in the words of Mark Coleman, better keep his ass down at 185 uh but this past weekend uh paulo filo got pulled out of uh of scheduled fight just hours before it was supposed to go down in brazil because he had a seizure which gets a sad are you fucking kidding me from me but the real are you fucking kidding me goes out to the name of the mma event that filo was supposed to appear on which was fatality arena seven which makes you wonder i assume it was an mma event but who knows maybe paulo filo was gonna fight in the kumite man i don't know oh man i would totally watch paulo filo in the kumite he seems like the kind of dude you might be able to sign up for something like that he seems to have kind of a tong po type build too when you think about it (laughs) still fatality arena seven are you fucking kidding me well, this week, Jed, my are you fucking kidding me? You remember before we were talking about how we assumed that Miles Jury was going to go out there and beat Takanori Gomi and then maybe do some vaguely assholeish thing like he had done after he beat Diego Sanchez. I we were talking about how he wasn't trying to be cocky, but it was so easy to go out there and beat Diego Sanchez. Yep, I remember. Uh, well, he kind of did it again after Takanori Gomi, just in a different way. This time, it seemed like he managed to avoid take making that exact mistake. But I don't know what it is. He comes off as the most unlikable person in the world. He comes off as the kind of guy where, like, you think that it's somehow unfair that he's so good at fighting because you want to just beat him up once he starts talking. And he, he, even in this fight, after, you know, when asked who he wants to fight next, uh, I don't know, let my management work it out. Right now, I'm just going to go have some sushi and sake and kind of, like, did a little, hey, you know what I'm talking about, right, to the Japanese crowd who all looked at him like, don't don't try to play us like that, man. You fucking kidding me, Miles Jury? How do you manage to be so unlikable? You're so good. How do you manage to be so hateable? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, that is weird. That's kind of like, you know, being like, does anybody like beer? I'm about to go drink a beer up in here. <laughs> but- hey, does San Francisco know how to party? There's <laughs> a lot of pretty girls out here in Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Anyway, maybe he just gets his tips from rock stars. He goes to a lot of like poison and rat shows. You know, if that if that were it, that would actually be the most likable thing I had heard about Miles Jury. Fair enough. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, tell me if this sounds familiar. There's not a man alive who can beat me. Wow, bad. Not good. No? No. That was said by Irish featherweight and loser of two different fights by submission, Conor McGregor. Uh, now, this one seems like the if, if Donald Cerrone and Eddie Alvarez, if that's the one that's, hey, immediate stakes in the division, big, huge fight, uh you know, worlds colliding there in the co-main event. This one seems like the showpiece, is it not? This is the one with, uh, you know, Mr. Charisma, Conor McGregor, going to come right from the tailor getting his custom-made suit fitted and then roll up right in there and fight Dustin Poirier, who is either going to be the spoiler or just the next guy set up to get his ass kicked and make McGregor look like a world beater. Now, I don't know really which one it's going to be yet, but I got to say, even though I think it's kind of, I'd feel like I was getting a screw job if I was Demetrius Johnson uh, looking at those Conor McGregor ads over and over again, I got to say, this is at least the UFC paying attention to what people are into and and going with what they know is going to sell the fight because this guy, he is interesting. You do want to see what's going to happen with him, do you not? Yeah, I'm going to be interested in anyone who shows up to the media events wearing a pair of Ray-Bans and just looking like a million bucks in a vest. It's not easy to just pull off a vest no. without your jacket on. Like no. you took your jacket off 
in preparation for the stare down. You're just going to rock your vest up there. Yeah, you don't see that a lot. Yeah, and for some reason it works with Conor McGregor. Uh, I also like that he, you know, has like a weird mysticism thing going on in a lot of his quotes. It was, it was a lot more, uh, evident b- before his last fight when he went out and beat up Diego Brandao, but he was in Ireland, but where he was talking about how he'd already seen it and you know, he had these visions. Motherfuckers with their visions, man. His, what his is visions that? come true? What do you think? Would you like to be a fly on the wall for a conversation between Conor, Conor McGregor and the big homie Manny Newton? When they say visions, do they mean thinking about things? <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. Because I, I, I'm always confused by the use of that phrase. Like, are you having actual hallucinations or are you imagining things that you would like to have happen in the future? Because I, I don't know if that counts as a vision, man. Yeah, I think we're talking about maybe just like having a positive worldview, being confident, like okay. imagining yourself as the victor. Which I probably has some kind of psychological effect. I imagine that couldn't hurt. I mean, I'm not saying you should envision yourself losing, but I'm also not like, it's not like you, you know, took a peyote trip into the spirit world here. You just thought about something. Right. But it also wouldn't surprise you would have to find out that Conor McGregor had a copy of The Secret stowed away <laughs> in his, in his luggage. Oh, that would not surprise me, but it would worry me. Uh, well, let's talk about Dustin Poirier a little bit, because he certainly is going to be the toughest guy that Conor McGregor has fought yet to date. He comes in with a three-fight win streak. He also beat Diego Brandao back at UFC 168. Uh, he put that, made a sandwich out of that one with wins out of, also wins over Akira Khorasani and Eric Koch back at UFC, uh, 164. Um, and like I said, gonna be the toughest guy that Conor McGregor has fought. If Conor McGregor can beat him, it'll make for a nice kind of like top 10 win for him. But at the same time, you expect Dustin Poirier to come out there throwing heavy leather, not necessarily a, uh, Chad Mendez type individual who would go out and, and, and try to bring the fight to the ground and drag Conor McGregor into his world. So while it's gonna be a good test for McGregor, you get the impression that this is also like kind of an advantageous matchup for him, right? For Conor McGregor, I think it's a less advantageous matchup than what he's seen so far. Yeah, toughest guy he's fought yet, but at the same time, still, matchup of styles-wise. I I feel, though, like, uh, you know, I I talked to Dustin Poirier a lot when I was down there at American Top Team, and he was saying how his big concern these days is when he fights someone who he thinks is a really good wrestler, and that, hey, this guy can take me down and hold me there and kind of stifle my offense from there, and that Conor McGregor doesn't have that, so he doesn't really feel that worried about it, and he feels like a, he's the kind of guy where if you pressure him and you get in his face and you don't just stay out there at his range, uh, then you know he turns into a different kind of fighter. Okay, but I feel like you just kind of made my point for me. Like Dustin Poirier is worried that the other dude is going to take him down. The thing he's going to do is come out in this fight and try to get in Conor McGregor's face. That seems to be the strategy that we've seen guys try to use before with, uh, shall we say, bad results for them. Yeah, that could be. I mean, I, I think, though, that the thing, the question mark right now for Conor McGregor is ground game, right? So yeah. I, I would not yes. be surprised if Dustin Poirier comes out there and thinks that part of getting in his face is going to be getting him to the fence, getting him into a clinch and getting him down uh, and try to wear him out there. I mean, I, I don't think getting in his face necessarily just means bum rushing the guy and hoping for the best, because I think that would be a bad strategy. Uh, but I do think, I mean, this is one where you, when you look at this matchup, you see a guy who has a lot more big fight experience against some of those really tough featherweights in the UFC in Dustin Poirier. I mean, he's been in there with some of those, those serious dudes, you know, Conor McGregor's had what three fights in the UFC and Poirier's had like 10 or 11. I mean, that the guy's, the guy's been in there for a while. I think that that gives him uh, a little bit more of an advantage than we might realize. Uh, I mean, I think either way it's going to be a tough fight, but it's, the one thing that really makes me excited about it is I feel like either way, we're going to come away knowing something about Conor McGregor that we didn't know before. Yeah, and that is an interesting thing here. I feel like if Dustin Poirier comes out and sprints right into the teeth of his offense, it won't surprise me very much uh, if Conor McGregor beats him pretty quickly. At the same time, we saw some pretty good, uh, well, at least some existent uh, tape de- takedown defense from uh, Conor McGregor when he fought Diego Brandao uh, back in July. And to his credit, Diego Brandao kind of did push him up against the fence and at least make some effort at, at taking him down and, and Conor McGregor managed to foil those plans pretty succinctly. Uh, I will be, uh, you know, glad to see Conor McGregor try to, or uh, Dustin Poirier try to do that, try to, try to take him down. Um, if he comes out and just tries to, to throw hillbilly haymakers with him and gets knocked out, then I feel like I'm not going to learn that much about Conor McGregor, except that he does indeed have the sort of electric stand-up skills that, that we thought he had. Uh, at the same time, I do want to see him tested, and I hope that Dustin Poirier has more of a uh, 
mixed martial arts game plan uh, and does come out and, and, and test his ground game a little bit because we haven't really seen anybody do that yet. Uh, you know, through those three fights in the UFC and previous to that, um, all of his appearances in, in, in cage warriors, he hasn't really fought anybody who uh, w- would strike you as a real A-list wrestler and hasn't really even fought anybody that, that tried to make it their mission statement to really put him on the ground. Well, the thing I wonder here is how do you think Dustin Poirier feels going into this fight against Conor McGregor who clearly has been selected for a little bit of preferential treatment by the UFC. I mean, you talk about, you hear Conor McGregor talk about his relationship now with Dana White and Lorenzo Fertitta, and it sounds like they're just bros hanging out together, you know, hanging out at uh, fancy hotel suites and, uh, you know, riding down the strip and the topless luxury automobiles, that kind of stuff. Dustin Poirier doesn't seem like he gets that treatment uh, very often from the UFC. I think that that would make me feel maybe a little extra motivation to go out there and uh, maybe ruin their plans, but also like maybe they weren't totally behind me. Like like when I first heard that they were going to make this match, my first thought was, you know, I'm glad they're they're not saving him, you know, from any tough tests. They're putting him in there uh, a little sooner than I thought they would against a really tough guy, a, a very, you know, a guy who could very easily come out there and beat Conor McGregor. Um, and then at the same time, you look at how Conor McGregor gets a, that special treatment from the UFC. It kind of seems like they're putting a lot of eggs in that basket. Like they don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, and if you're Dustin Poirier, you couldn't really blame the guy if he felt that way. But at the same time, like that's the kind of thing that a lot of fighters do need to motivate themselves. And in fact, a lot of fighters will go out of their way to make themselves feel like that, even when that isn't really the reality. That's true. You know what I mean? So uh, it might be, you know, I suppose that if you talk to uh, Dustin Poirier, he would probably tell you he doesn't have any pressure on him in this fight. All the pressure's on Conor McGregor. He's been able to kind of fly under the radar. He's been able to kind of like establish this me against the world bunker mentality that's so popular in professional sports and he can just kind of go out there and let himself go and uh uh you know come home with the w I would, that's probably what i would say if i was uh conor mcgregor's sports psychiatrist psychologist uh by the way um i'm available for hire as a sports psychologist. I don't oh, know if I mentioned that. Oh, no, you didn't mention that. That's interesting. I'll yeah, make sure the, that... the offers haven't started rolling in yet, but... I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure any day now they'll, they'll come in. I'm ready to create champions. Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you. What's your uh, your personal philosophy on visions? Because those seem popular. Into them. Okay. Really into them. Okay. Yeah, I'm into visions and I'm into to cleanses. What about... Uh, personal cleanses. How much attention should one pay to one's deja vus and or coincidences? Well, we all have them. Okay. And I think that that you know, is as meaningful as, as, as anything else that we could, that we could say, uh, <laughs> what are we looking at here? Does Connor McGregor, does the, the hype train keep rolling? Does Connor McGregor come out here and, uh, and do what he's done to all of his, his previous opponents and, uh, wear Dustin Poirier out on the feet and, and end up climbing up on top of the cage and, and showing off that, uh, straight blast gym tattoo that he's got on his chest. Well, you know, if you ask me to, to make a pick, and they did for the, uh, you know, our MMA junkie staff picks, I was really surprised when I looked at the odds to see that Conor McGregor, uh, was as big a favorite as he is. It's like minus 250, hmm. 275, um, which really surprised me. Um, I'm going with Poirier. Uh, in part because I, you know, I, it always biases you, I think, when you're around the, the training camp and are actually seeing what the guy's doing and holy shit, he turns out to be really good. I'm sure if I was in Conor McGregor's training camp, I'd come away with the same impression. But I do think there's something to be said for not only his experience in the UFC, but also you go into that gym and it's, you know, him sparring with, uh, Will, the Bellator interim lightweight champ, Will Brooks, and a bunch of tough guys in there, uh, and Nick Lentz, those kind of guys where, uh, you know, I don't know if Conor McGregor has that same level of talent around him every single day. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, this one feels like it could go either way to me. I think the odds ought to be a little bit closer. I think that's some of the just popularity of Conor McGregor talking. But if you force me to pick, I'll pick Poirier. Yeah, and he's given underdog money, huh? Yeah, uh, plus two twenty-five. What I'm looking at right now. Boy, I wouldn't mind taking a ride on that if I had a bunch of money and didn't care if I ever saw again. How's that co-main event podcast savings account looking? Flush? Let's look. Uh, we're, you know, we're going to need some people to buy some mugs. Okay. Dang. Well, that's another opportunity missed. Well, that's going to do it for round number two, though. We'll be right back with round number three.
Dominic Cruz has not lost a fight since March 24th of 2007. He, in fact, has never lost a fight down in the bantamweight division. That last loss came against Uriah Faber at WEC 26 in a, a fight for Uriah Faber's WEC featherweight title. The real problem with Dominic Cruz is that he has not fought at all since October 1st, 2011, owing to a laundry list of injuries and uh, just some terrible luck when it comes to, to keeping himself together physically. We think we're still, you know, a little bit less than a week away, but barring some kind of terrible tragedy, uh, Don McCruz is going to make it to the cage this Saturday at UFC 178 to take on uh, the UFC's setup man, Takeya Mizugaki. You, his, just, you just jinxed him right there. In his comeback fight. Uh, I can hear his ligaments snapping. But like we said at the top of the show, uh, Dominic Cruz relegated to the to the Fox Sports 1 prelims for this fight. Uh, is that an injustice to you, or does that just speak to, like we said before, the the kind of incredible depth of this particular card? I, I'm going to say it's the second one, and also I think that you see a little bit more of this strategy on the UFC's part when it comes to pay-per-views, that it seems like they are trying more and more to use that that featured prelim uh, spot, it if you will. It is the, the main event of the prelims. Yes, Let's point it, that out. So. Uh, it seems like they are trying to use that a little bit more to make that a, a big, you know, kind of must-see fight uh, for fans so that, you know, kind of make them, if you can get them to tune in to the undercard, to, to the free portion – get them hyped up about it right as it ends, then maybe it's a little easier to get them to say, oh, what the hell? They're already there. They're sitting there. They're already on the couch. Get out the credit card and go ahead and order the pay-per-view. I think there's probably some logic to that. I mean, there does seem to be a connection between how many people you can get to watch the undercard and how many people will buy the pay-per-view. Uh, so I don't know. I, I wouldn't necessarily see that as a slight if I were Dominic Cruz. One thing, though, that I was thinking that puts it in perspective how long it's been since he fought that that last fight he had, October first, uh, two thousand eleven, that was at a UFC Live event, the short-lived US, UFC Live series on Versus, when they basically they were trying to come up with another name than UFC on Versus uh, because it sounded a little too WEC-ish probably to them. Uh, yeah, UFC on Versus Six was the alternative name for that one where he fought Demetrius Johnson and beat him by decision. That lets you know, I mean, we're in like a different era TV-wise for the UFC yep. than, than we were back then. That's how long it's been. That is a lot to overcome, man. Yeah, and you also pointed out that he fought Demetrius Johnson, who now is the champion in a weight class that didn't even exist back then. So a lot of different stuff uh, going around today than when Dominic Cruz was out there fighting. Um, you know what, though? Uh, he, he's obviously, like I said, a guy who never lost his title. Um, he was the, uh, the WEC bantamweight champion and then beat Scott Jorgensen to become the UFC bantamweight champion. Uh, I can, I can think of worse things that would happen that could happen to the UFC bandweight division than Dominic Cruz beating Takeya Mizugaki this weekend and, and kind of getting promoted straight into a, a title shot against, uh, TJ Dillashaw. No offense to Rafael Asuncao, who's still running around out there with a win over the, the champion. But, uh, uh, I think that that could be kind of appointment viewing for the 135 pound division. If you could get Dominic Cruz back into a position where, you know, he'd be, he'd be vying to get back the thing that he never lost. I guess he would just have to keep himself together long enough to have those fights. Yeah. And I think that I feel like we're all going to be examining Dominic Cruz really closely here. Like he's some kind of uh, prize racehorse. Uh, that we don't know uh, how his ankles are going to hold up or whatever, whatever, whatever happens to racehorses. I don't know. So probably something to do with their legs. Uh, but you know, he, he's going to come out there and kind of trot around the paddock here. Uh, or at least that seems to be what the thinking is and matching him up with uh, Mizugaki. Uh, and we're going to get a look at him and then get to decide whether he's really back yet or whether he's still feeling some of the effects of that extremely long layoff. Uh, I think it's going to be a matter of not just if he wins, but how he looks in that fight. I mean, I think it's unreasonable to expect that he won't show at least a little bit of signs of that that ring rust. Because everybody talks about how it's never going to be an issue for them. They train so hard, it doesn't matter. Uh, and then almost everybody afterwards, uh, depending on how their performance went, will come back afterwards and say, yeah, no, it did affect me. 
You think we're going to be watching him like at the weigh-in be like, oh, he looks like he's limping a little bit. I don't know. I don't know, man. Is it, did, did he, does he kind of have a little, little hitch in his giddy up there? Uh-oh. Well, and the thing about Dominic Cruz, too, is that he relies so heavily on that mobility, and that is one of the things that uh, enables him to be such a tough puzzle for his opponents to figure out is that, you know, as, uh, as Joe Warren would yell at you while you were in the fight against him, it's just hard to get your hands on him. Got to right? get your hands on him, Get Scotty. your hands on him, Scotty. Yeah. Like, easier said than done against a guy like Dominic Cruz. So, you know, if these injuries have, uh, you know, caused him to lose a step, if he's not 100%, if he does have, have ring rust, then, like, maybe we're looking at that this could turn into kind of an interesting fight because Takeya Mizuzaki, Mizugaki, I'm going to get that right at some point. I'm no, going to say not. Mizugaki instead of Mizuzaki. He'll have retired. <laughs> that's that's probably true. Uh he's won five fights in a row in the UFC. Uh you know, none of them against real uh high level A list competition. He's got a win over Brian Caraway from back in, in March of two thousand thirteen. But you know, maybe if Dominic Cruz doesn't doesn't show up hundred percent, he could find himself having a tougher evening than than we expect. Mention that that loss to Brian Caraway and watch him go off about how unjust that one was. Uh, but yeah, no, you, you bring up a good point. I mean, it does seem like though he's kind of chosen because he's a tough guy who will give you give you some work in there, um, but doesn't seem like you know athletically he should blow away a guy like Dominic Cruz if he comes back in that same kind of condition. Do you think like in that boxing article that we read that that uh, one of the UFC matchmakers went to Takeya Mizugaki's gym and was like. Uh, I need an opponent for for one of my guys. He needs to get some some time in the ring. He needs some work. He needs about three rounds of work, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't. I, maybe you don't even need to say that. Uh, maybe just hope that that's the way it pans out. I mean, I, I part of me feels like, man, you think about all the things that Dominic Cruz has lost in terms of money and opportunities, uh, just being injured. These what could have been, you know, the most lucrative years of his uh, career as a champion. Uh, and it's really sad, you know, it's really unfortunate that it all happened the way it did. On the, the bright side though, it has, uh, given us an opportunity to see that that dude has a future as a broadcaster. When you watch him as an analyst on those shows, uh, even if it's on state run TV, he's a really good analyst. Yeah, he's, he's good at it. And, uh, also, like, kind of a bummer to see all those things happen to him because he's, he's a nice dude, Dominic he Cruz. He's a, he's a guy that you, you get the impression is not putting on airs and, and, uh, is a guy that, I feel like we want to see good things happen for when when he makes his way uh, back to the cage this weekend. Um, do you, are we in a situation though where do you think people have forgotten? Like, has he been out so long? They forgot about that, Dre. That, that, that they forgot about Cruz, or or like, because I don't feel like we view T.J. Dillashaw as like an illegitimate champion, and I don't think we viewed the monster Henan Barrow as an illegitimate champion. But at the same time, Dominic Cruz is a dude. He never lost it. I just don't think that. You know, there's not a lot of, uh, at least that I hear, there's not a lot of people beating the drums out there talking about Dominic Cruz, the true champ, is coming back to to get the gold, right? I'm sure there are people who have become fans of the sport uh, and just in the time that he's been out who who don't really know anything about him. I'm sure that 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 has to happen to some extent where some people forgot about him. Some people just never even really heard about him um, because they didn't have verses or whatever. Uh, So yeah, that that's, that's entirely possible. And you know, so maybe this is a similar situation for him in a different way as with Eddie Alvarez. Here's your chance to go back out there, remind everybody who you are, introduce some new people to you and, and show them what you can really do. That is also a high pressure situation though. I mean, there's a lot, going to be heaped onto Dominic Cruz's shoulders here and hopefully his knee does not buckle under the strain of that if you don't have verses how do you watch bass fishing uh you mean how do I watch people catch fish on tv yeah bass I fishing. don't I don't do that huh so that's all is that well we lead different lives brother <laughs> that's for sure Let's I just do- assume that people are out there catching bass and I don't need to know about it <laughs> Let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff? Well, Chad, I don't know if you heard, but uh, Spike TV is not going to sit this one out this weekend. UFC might be hosting a big-ass pay-per-view and going to have the prelims on Fox Sports and whatnot. But Spike TV is going to go into the vault and get their old Eddie Alvarez tapes out. Going to counter-program UFC 178 with some sweet-ass old Eddie Alvarez fights at right about the same time the new Eddie Alvarez fight happens. I'm just saying, hell, it's better than a Blue Mountain State marathon. I'm I'm kind of into it. I like how like both the UFC and Bellator kind of act like they're not sweating it. 
But then they do all this stuff that makes you think that they really are sweating it. More no, than no, no, I had this on the on. calendar for a long time. We were planning on running all these old Eddie yeah, Alvarez I'm sweats. sure. They were like, oh, you're the guy who left the company? The disgruntled former employee who left the company under a shroud of bad feelings and, and, and like legal ramifications? Yeah, we're, we're totally, we've been planning for a long time to air a, an hours-long retrospective of that guy's biggest wins. You know, though, this is the stuff. When they do stuff like that, that's what really tells you where that audience is that just kind of tunes into Spike TV to see what fighting is on. When the when they counter-programmed the UFC's debut on Fox with the Cain Velasquez Jury Dos Santos fight, and uh, what they show on Spike TV, like old Cain Velasquez fights, or old, or maybe yeah. it was like Ultimate yes. Junior Dos Santos or Ultimate something. Ultimate Velasquez. They got like over a million views when the shit was free and live on Fox, a network everybody has if you have a TV, uh, and still a million people who like fighting enough to want to watch it on TV, we're instead watching old shit on Spike instead of watching the the new awesome shit on network TV. I mean, that audience is out there. It's baffling to me every time it happens, but I, I kind of love the chaos that it provides. Yeah, I do too. I'm into it. People just getting confused. Yeah, thinking turn on they, the TV. I don't know. I don't, thinking they are watching I, UFC 178. Is, am I living in the present or the past? They, I don't, where's the remote? They, I don't know. They think it's a one-night tournament and everybody fights Eddie Alvarez. <laughs> That's how it goes. Which would be an interesting idea for the Ultimate Fighter, by the way. There you go. Uh, ben, this week I'm just saying that over the weekend, Invicta FC confirmed that current women's featherweight champion, someone you may have heard of, Chris Cyborg Justino, hmm, will familiar. indeed be making her bantamweight debut on December 5th. So I'm just saying, uh-oh, because if Cyborg starts fighting at 135 pounds and she's fighting in the UFC sister organization and her fights are appearing on the UFC Fight Pass .com. and she's out there passing drug tests, what then will be said about why she could not possibly fight her rowdiness, Ronda Rousey? What I, then will be said, Ben? I don't know what will be said. I do know that one thing will be said is you calling me up to say, hey, how did that uh, cyborg fight turn out because I don't have fight pass? And I won't tell you. Or maybe oh. I'll just I'll willfully spread misinformation. Oh, damn. You would do that, too, wouldn't you? That's right. That's right. I would. Well, I'm going to have to get some other sources. I'm going to have to double check your information, see if your story checks out. <laughs> You're a true journalist. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to let you know all the stuff that happened at UFC 178. It's going to be a wild and crazy time. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. God, you know, if, if only there was some way that those fight pass fights could, could be seen. You know, I wouldn't just have to rely on getting telegraphs from you and reading the ticker tape, calling you up on the phone and, 